You are a warrior. Three twenty one status. What kind of vehicle is it? You are the very best your nation has to offer. Nine one one. Multiple shots fired. They're asking you to lead. Five. We need a Bearcat. It's up to us. So one thirty three. I need somebody that's got a visual on where the shooter is. You must be sound in mind, body, and spirit. Forty. Where's the officer down? I have a rescue helicopter that wants to land and help. This is the podcast that will make you the one. The one that will bring everyone back. Trouble, we have shot fired, shot fired. Give me back up now. Because no one else is coming. We're going to have an officer shot. An officer shot. 100 block of East Street. Suspect is down. Suspect is down. This is the squad room. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of The Splatter. Finally back with a new episode, a very excellent episode. And this is the podcast that helps you, the modern warrior, achieve your full pot- full potential and fulfill your purpose as a first responder. Uh, you heard in the intro just there that this I have the voiceover guy say that this is the podcast that makes you the one. Well, maybe we should revise that. This is a podcast that helps give you some ideas, give you some thoughts, some direction, some advice, some guidance, but it's on you to become the one. It's about up to you what you do with this information, of course, and it's up to me as a host to tease out this information from our guests, learn from it myself, report back to you. Uh, I've always said that I am the first uh, guinea pig for the show, and I learn as much from our guests as uh, you do, trust me. Uh, so... <clears throat> but you must understand that as a first responder, you are a leader. And it's my firm belief that we are the absolute best our nation has to offer. And that we must burden ourselves with leading others if we are to save our country. I'm not just speaking about Americans, of course, but this uh, podcast gets downloaded now in over 90 countries. And in each one, I can find ways that leadership is missing, particularly in the first responder communities, and that people are looking for someone to show the way. And it's my firm belief that. We are the chosen ones in that sense, not in the spiritual sense, but in the chosen one, we have the opportunity to lead more people more often, have more contacts with the public than anybody else, and it's up to us. Now, before we get to the interview, I want to remind you that you can get more information on this episode, including show notes and links by going to thesquadroom.net. You can also subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, or anywhere else where you find your podcasts, and follow me on Instagram and Twitter at The Squadroom. Now, also, I encourage you to join our Facebook group. Uh, If you're a member on Facebook, you can search the Squad Room Podcast Group, and you can. uh, It's a closed group, uh, closed to current and aspiring and retired law enforcement personnel. And uh, we uh, share tips in there, and people can ask questions, and uh, other listeners help jump in and answer questions. So you get a nice uh, uh, cross section of people who want to help. I also want to thank our sponsors for this episode. Uh, first, Blue Line Flex. Blue Line Flex is a fitness apparel brand owned and operated by a veteran cop uh, on the East Coast. Justin, the owner, he started Blue Line Flex to create a high-quality apparel company that gives back to police charities. The uh, Blue Line Flex t-shirts have an athletic shape and cut <clears throat> and are longer to allow for easier concealed carry. I like them because they don't pull out from underneath uh, my vest or my pants. They also have a line of women's wear, including leggings and insulated protein shakers, I can't uh, vouch for the women's leggings myself because uh, they're a little tight for me. Uh, but you can check them out at bluelineflex.com or on Instagram at bluelineflex. Also, I want to thank uh, Hardhead Veterans. Uh, when I finished the academy, 
uh, I went to the uh, get our equipment from our people for our uniforms, and I was handed an old riot, riot helmet, and I mean old, like Vietnam era. I have no idea what ballistic properties this thing has, and I still have it 13 years later. And it was extremely uncomfortable, and it was digging into my forehead and causing a splitting headache within minutes. That's why I was excited to find hardhead veterans and their modern and extremely economical ballistic helmets. Stay tuned later in the show. You're going to hear from uh, uh, Kit Dumpf over at Hardhead Veterans. He's going to tell you more about them and his story and how he and his uh, partners started uh, Hardhead Veterans to give back to the military and Leo communities with uh, a ballistic helmet that is economical and affordable for everybody. And I'll just tell you now that if you already are thinking about it, you can go over and get $20 off your helmet by entering the coupon code squad room uh, and let them know, follow them on Instagram, of course, hardhead veterans and uh, let them know that you followed them because you heard them here and that they support our show. And then they also support police charities and they do a lot of good work there. All right. Our episode today, this is a fun one for me. It's like a throwback a bit. Uh, it's a guy who most of you uh, uh, have never heard of, but um, you will immediately become impressed with him, uh, only because he is just now sort of coming out from the shadows, uh, literally. Um, uh, Brad Thomas is our guest. Brad uh, got connected through, a, uh, we got connected through a mutual friend, and um uh, we share a love of music and I talk about in the show, my history in music. I won't rehash it here, but before I was a cop, I worked in music. Uh, Brad was an aspiring musician when he joined the army, eventually went into the Rangers and was in Mogadishu, uh, during the battle of Mogadishu, which we just passed the 25th anniversary of, uh, Brad's platoon took the majority of the, uh, fatalities that day. And, uh, he shares some of that experience and what he learned from it. And then eventually went on to Ranger Recon and then to Delta, uh, otherwise known as the unit. And I've had a lot of uh, SEALs on the show, Navy SEALs, uh, but I've never had, uh, and I've had some Green Berets too, uh, but I've never had a Delta guy. So this is my first chance to do that. And it was fun to talk with Brad because we ended up, I knew I wanted to talk the theme of transitions, but uh, as you hear throughout the show, the context of relationships keeps coming up and Brad and I ended up, there's a funny story where Brad and I end up knowing a person who actually turns out to be a very good friend of Brad's, one of his closest friends and, uh, goes back to my time in the music industry. And so it's got me thinking today about the relationships that we have and that the world really is truly small in that this podcast can go out and reach people on the other side of the world and connect people. And like that Facebook group I just mentioned, how, how people in that group from all over the world can share tips with each other and, and give guidance and maybe course correct each other just a little bit and help people out in a better way. And as we talk about on the show, you are, you are who you hang out with. And, um, it was just, it was, I definitely got elevated for the hour and a half that I spent with Brad just now talking with him. So please take a listen and, uh, follow Brad on, uh, on the socials. You can go to the, the website, our website, the squadroom.net to find out more about that. His band uh, is coming out, Silence and Light. I'm excited to hear the music that they got coming. We'll talk about that in the show, too, because he's back into music. So without a further ado, here's Brad. Brad Thomas, welcome to the squad room, man. So we got connected through uh, a friend who, um, a mutual friend, and was like, hey, you got to you gotta talk to my buddy Brad. And I was like, oh, yeah? Well, tell me about him. And uh, he started rattling off uh, some of your resume. I was like, yeah, I, I got to talk to him. And 
before we hit record, uh, tell people too that um, we had talked about transitions, and the theme of this show is kind of about transitions. And so maybe I should preface the the conversation that we're about to have for my audience because some of them know, but some of them don't because I've mentioned it at times. But before I was a cop and in service for now almost well over thirteen years, uh, I was in the music industry, and I worked for. Major labels, uh, Atlantic Records, uh, BMG, Mercury, Polygram, uh, and that was the career I was going to do. And all, all through high school and up through college, and even after college, I moved to New York City, which is what eventually got me to L.A., it was all working for record labels and working with bands very directly, um, some of them some very popular bands. And so when I came into public service, uh, that background was unique. And, uh, of course, um, uh, I'm happy with the transition I made, but it is definitely part of who I am was this first 12 years of my life working in the music industry. And we, our mutual friend, had shared that we both have a mutual interest in music uh, and similar music, and also that you were now, again, one of your transitions is into being a musician. So that is kind of part of the tone of how we ended up talking uh, but you, you have a long bio and I don't want to, I don't want to rehash it. I want you to tell it if you don't mind and, and explain to everybody, well, your background, where did you grow up and how did you first transition and into the military? So I, I grew up in Maryland in a suburb of DC in a fairly well-to-do area. And, you know, my parents exposed me to music when I was really young and we we had a piano, which they bought after uh, I had seen a Barry Manilow concert and kind of declared that that's what I wanted to be, um, you know, was a musician. And that kind of led me to the next instrument, you know, clarinet and then saxophone and played that and ultimately led me to the guitar, which is what I still play. Um, but I had uh, my father, who was a Ph.D. doctor, he um, worked as a volunteer fire captain and, and spent a lot of his time bringing me to the fire station. You know, when we weren't doing things on the weekend, he might take me up to the fire station and see, you know, see the trucks and wash his car and do things like that. And I, I saw this camaraderie, right, between him and the other firemen. And that was something that I don't think I recognized as, at the time. But it's something that stuck with me and probably one of the reasons that led me ultimately to the military. And, you know, maybe 12 or 13, I started reading books about Rangers in Vietnam and Special Forces and CIA in Vietnam and Studies and Observation Group. And, you know, so there was an interest there, but it wasn't something that I thought, oh, I'm going to join the military and, and go, into the, go into the military and do this. I, I still wanted to pursue pursue music and and was doing so and i don't know kind of took that to the end of its course and things didn't work out and we had a really good opportunity uh, musically you know to kind of take that next step and things just fell apart and i was you know disgusted with it and let down and heartbroken and on a whim you know it was kind of like hey fuck it i'm gonna join the army <laughs> okay so give me a perspective on like, cause DC was a hotbed uh, for music geeks listening. DC is 
was a hotbed, especially in the in the seventies, eighties, of like pretty influential music. Were you running around with those bands like Minor Threat or Fugazi or uh, Jawbox or any of those? I I saw some of those bands, so they're a little bit ahead of me. Yeah. Okay. In terms of age, but I I saw a few of those bands. Like I saw Minor Threat. I saw Fugazi. That wasn't really my shtick, but I had friends that were into that. So, you know, again, you're you're correct. That area was like jam packed with music and the Nine Thirty Club and oh yeah, the whole bunch of other places. Um, you know, so I saw Testament and you know metal bands and things like that that were happening before they were popular. Um, you know, the, probably people that grew up in Kansas. Not that there's anything wrong with that, but probably didn't see. Sure. My- and uh, anyway, so. Yeah, that was the scene, you know, and, and the bands that I was following were bands like Kicks and Wrathchild, which both kind of had a breakthrough and never really 100% took off. But the band that I was in was kind of going to fill those shoes once they moved on and upwards. Mm-hmm. And uh, anyway, it all kind of fell apart. And, you know, like I said, heartbroken, went and talked to the recruiter. You mentioned the 930 Club. Uh and I almost got carjacked on a way to a show there. <laughs> I was going, I was going to a private show to see Jimmy Eat World play, and I was on a, ro- a cross country road trip with a buddy as we were going out to intern in New York City for the summer at a record label. And yeah, we took a couple wrong turns, and this is of course before iPhones could point your way, right? And we yeah. ended up in a not great neighborhood. <laughs> and I remember getting our car surround, his car getting surrounded. Lots of people banging on the core, demanding for us to get out, and nearly ran over some fools trying to get out of there and run a red light. <laughs> so, but the Nine Thirty Club was a—it's le- a legendary rock club uh, that I've seen shows at. It's an—it's an awesome place. So, I got to ask you though, because I, I grew up with music too, and my parents were both music teachers, even, and um, they weren't by the time I was around, but before I was around. But music was like integral in my life, and it was a—it was a through point throughout my life, and. For my parents, it was classical music, and that's kind of where I think I started my foundation as as a musician, which I never succeeded at because I was horrible. I didn't want to practice. I just wanted to be on stage. Um, but it's interesting to me like it's that your dad's service is was influential in in you going into the army did he because my dad was um like it never occurred to me that the military was an option at 18, 19 years old. And I think it's a lot to do with my dad being a Vietnam veteran who was drafted and um, served uh, in the Army, but uh, really tried to guide me away from that. But I was having this conversation with my wife the other night. Like, for some reason, it just it didn't register as an, as an option, and especially as a musician. It was, like, not the cool thing to do, right, <laughs> was to go join the military. Um, but what was your experience with that with your musician friends when you when you signed up? Well, I had a uh, a buddy of mine had joined the Air Force. So I guess about the time that we were 18 or 19, he joined the Air Force and, you know, was talking about these guys that came around at the end of his basic training that were recruiting for what I didn't know at the time was uh, special tactics. So the guys that jump in and either rescue down pilots or call for fire, you know, with fast movers and things like that. But they were recruiting. So that was initially what kind of perked my ears was like, oh, wow, I could go do this. And one of the books that I read uh, about Vietnam was, I think, called Bat 21, which was about a 
a pilot that got shot down. And then I think some Air Force folks came in and rescued him. And um, anyway, so that, that kind of what was initially what, what got me to talk to the Air Force recruiter. And then, you know, couldn't get any sort of guarantee from the Air Force recruiter. So he pulled the, the wool, the bait and switch and said, yeah, just sign this. And as soon as you sign it, we'll get you a contract. And I did. And anyway, after I signed, he kept telling me, oh, yeah, the contract is next week. You know, we'll get it next week. We'll get it next week and never followed through. And I was leaving the recruiter station one day and the army guy pulled me aside and he said, hey, come, come here and uh, pulled me into his office. And he's like, what kind of line of bullshit is that guy telling you? And I said, well, he told me, you know, if I signed that he would get me a contract, but now there's no contract. And he was like, what do you want to do? And I said, well, I want to be in like Delta Force. And he laughed, and then he said, well, you can't do that. You have to do something before that, like special forces. And I said, okay, well, I'll do that. And he said, well, you can't do that either. You got to like a ranger. So I said, all right, well, I'll do that. And he said, I can get you a contract for that, guaranteed. So he drove me down to Andrews Air Force Base in Maryland, and I had to go in. He couldn't, he couldn't really be a part of it officially, uh, but took me to the building and said, go in there and see Colonel so-and-so. And I walked in, you know, long-haired, nut-looking nut guy. And uh, I walked in and, and told the colonel, you know, hey, I signed this and I want to get out of it. And he screamed and yelled at me for probably 15 minutes and said, you're making the worst mistake of your life. Uh, you know, why are you joining the Army? The Air Force is better and we have better installations and blah, 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 blah. And I, I just said, yo, dude, sign my stuff. I'm, I'm, I'm going to leave. And uh, anyway, so he did. And that got me out of my Air Force contract. And then, I don't know, within a couple of weeks, signed, signed up with the Army. But that's, that's kind of my whole from music, you know, kind of why and how the military came about as even an option. Before that, as soon as I turned 18 and registered with Selective Services, which most people don't know, I guess. I don't even know if they still do that. Like, is, I think is so. Yeah, I think we still require it from uh, from applicants that they have a selective service number. Okay. So anyway, that that that's something that um, once I registered, then it put my phone number. I think it put my phone number on a list, and the recruiters would call and they would say, you know, hey, what do you want to do? You know, what are you doing? You can join the army, and, uh, and it was like, yeah, man, I play in a band. <laughs> and he said, well, the Army's got a band. <laughs> <laughs> I remember those calls. I totally remember those calls yeah, I when I hit 18. Yeah. Same kind of music that, uh, <laughs> that I want to play. And he, he told me all about the Army band, and they tore around and, and everything else. But anyway, I never considered it. It wasn't really until the very end where I was left. I was uh, 21, like literally just turned 21, and, and was thinking, okay, what am I going to do, man? Music thing isn't fulfilling me. Um, that's not going the way I want it to go. You know, I'm not going to starve and eat cat food on a roof in LA someplace like some of these guys have done. And, you know, wh what am I going to do? And it all kind of clicked like, Hey, the camaraderie that you saw at the firehouse, you know, all these things, the interest that you had in these Vietnam books and everything else, like join the military. So that's, that's kind of how it started. You know, something that strikes me, um, again, from my own experience is that in general, the musician 
mindset and the special forces mindset are two very different people. But where the common, where they commonly align is in the bands you see that are very successful, typically have the same work ethic and focus as some of the higher echelon military guys or the higher echelon uh, police unit guys. You know what I mean? Um, Most, most musicians in my experience, not to say, I don't know most, but the ones I've experienced, you know, are very uh, distracted or, or, or um, broken attention. And they are, they, it's a hard for them to do the hard things that make you the successful musician. It's easy for them to write music. It's hard for them to sit for four hours doing interviews or, um, you know, photographs or something, stuff like that. All the ancillary stuff that is what make helps make you successful. Uh, listening, you know, working with a producer you don't like that's whatever. So I don't know. Do you, do you, you see what I'm saying there though? Yeah. About that. Yeah. yeah. Uh, there, there's definitely a correlation. I think anybody that, you know, strives to be the best that they can be. And that, that's always something that, you know, has been a part of me and who I am mm-hmm. is if I do something, I'm going to do it all the way. I don't, I don't half-ass anything. And I think that that's what, you know, one of the characteristics that, you know, is common, like you mentioned, in special operations of any sort, whether it's LE or, or, or mill. I think, uh, you know, that's a common thread. Guys that want to do above and beyond, uh, just getting by. Mm-hmm. You know, and I know with the music project and the band that's going on right now with me, you know, that's something that I never have to worry about because everybody and every member is giving 110 percent and then some. Mm-hmm. You know, and and that thin skinness that I saw in music when I was a teenager and into my early twenties, like I, I don't see that now. I can I can tell any of these guys, you know, hey, uh, dial this back or speed this up or try playing this or, you know, and similarly they can say, hey, I don't like this as much as I like that. You know, nobody's nobody's getting their feelings hurt and being this passive, submissive you know, little bitch in the corner with, you know, a scowl on their face. Right. And I, I saw a whole lot of that back in the day in the music, in the music scene. You know, you're absolutely right. And I think um, I saw it in the bands I worked with, too. You would work with a band that was young and they just gotten signed and they were so much more ego centered in terms of the fragility of it. And then you I would go and work with a band like, for example, I worked with Stone Temple Pilots for a while. And talk about like consummate professionals. They had a job. They knew it. They'd been around each other. And the, there was a, the difference was striking, right? Or um, how even like someone like Phil Collins would I would watch him interact with the band. Same sort of thing. It's it's the professionalism of it that you get as you grow older, I think. And we have that or should have that in our careers as well, right? Our day to day careers for law, for those of us in law enforcement. I see the younger guys much more susceptible to ego driven platitudes and um, awards and stuff like that. And the older guys have a much more, they just got the perspective that comes with time on, I guess. Right. I think that's, you could say that of any career almost. Sure. So so there's only so many fall on your sword kind of moments, you know, that that's one of those things where when push comes to shove, you know, stand up for what you believe in at the same time. It's like, you're a part of this. And the only way to make this thing great is if everybody's working together to the best of their abilities, you know? Yeah. 
And that kind of translates to, you know, there are a lot of people within special operations, and I would imagine on the law enforcement side too, I, although I haven't personally experienced this, but on the military side, there's a lot of look down upon those who aren't in special operations. And that's something that I've never related to because I understand that it takes the supply guy who orders the flex cuffs that end up being used on, you know, this high value target. It takes everybody, the Intel guy that pieces together where someone might be hiding. Uh, you know, it, it takes the whole team to kind of make stuff happen. And anyway, that that's something that I've always, always kind of tried to keep the ego of, wow, I'm here and this is who I am and everything else mm-hmm. in, in check. And it's something, I mean, we'll continue through your career here because it's something that probably mm-hmm. you had to work hard at because you, you didn't just join the military and get a Ranger contract. I mean, you did time in the Rangers. And how long were you in the Rangers for? So I, uh, I got there in April of 91, and that was after I did uh, basic training, infantry basic training down at Fort Benning, Georgia, and then went to airborne school. And, and during, interestingly, I joined with a Ranger contract, which most of the guys when I got to basic training did not. And they were given a bonus, and they came in as like unassigned airborne, which meant you know, you don't have a unit assignment, but you're going to go to basic training, infantry, AIT, and then you're going to go to jump school. And at the end of which, the Ranger, the Ranger guys come around, and if you want to go to the Ranger indoctrination program, you can do so. So these guys were going to come in. They were going to get a bonus because the Ranger contract didn't afford a bonus and, and then volunteer and, and go to the Ranger indoctrination program. So I felt like when I got to basic training, like my recruiter had screwed me. Because all these other guys had gotten bonuses. Well, anyway, halfway through my basic training in AIT, Desert Storm kicked off. And our battalion commander of basic training, you know, the brigade or whatever it was, he got us all out on the parade field. I think it was on Thanksgiving Day. And uh, so Desert Storm hadn't yet started, but Desert Shield was in the process, the whole buildup and everything else. Mm-hmm. And he said, men... You're all 11 mic now, which meant mechanized. And people were like, what the hell is that? I don't, I don't even know what that is, right? But when we got back into our platoon areas, our drill sergeants told us, you're all going to ride in the back of a Bradley fighting vehicle and you know go over to Saudi as soon as you get done with basic training and AIT. And I was like, whoa, I didn't sign up for that. Not to not go to Saudi, but I didn't sign up to ride around the back of a tank. Like, that's not my thing. So uh, anyway, our recruiter, after a couple of days, pulled me and 12 other guys aside. Well, it was 12 of us total. So me and 11 other guys aside, and he said, you're, uh, you're a ranger contract, so they can't change you. You're going to stay airborne. You're going to go to the ranger indoctrination program. And if you're successful, then you'll end up in the ranger regiment, which is what ended up happening. Interesting. So uh, you spent some time there, and, and actually the – there's a there's a touch point we have in common not in common with the Rangers but uh another story that comes out of that but uh you were also there and the day we were going to talk or the the week we were going to talk was going was the 25th anniversary of the Battle of Mogadishu uh, and then we had to cancel our original talk for a variety of reasons on both sides um, but you were there you, you you participated in that in that battle and 
you know the the obviously the movie Black Hawk Down and the book and it's it's been talked about ad nauseum at this point. But um, you know the chance to talk to someone who was actually there and the lessons learned from that, I, we could do a whole show on that. But I guess not to spend the whole time on it, but because we could. But I'm rambling. But my question, I guess, out of that is to touch on that on that battle, but also we just passed the 25th anniversary and, you know, is there anything that you've looked back on out of that, uh, that's been a positive or something that you feel that has gotten better as a result of that, uh, that battle? Well, I I think special operations, military special operations have become what they've become, uh, in the years leading up to the GWAT you know, because of that battle. So I think there are a lot of great things that came from that Hmm. um, that benefited the military, at least. And, you know, whether it be body armor, ballistic helmets, uh, all kinds of, you know, equipment and and things like that that nobody really had at the time. Uh, I I think there are a ton of things. I think on on the bigger, like the humanitarian side of you know, like me personally and what I feel about the battle or, or what happened and, and everything else. I think that um, most of what I saw from the Ranger perspective was that these guys were in for four years, you know, and at whatever point that battle happened during their four years that they were in, you know, it, it either chased them out and they were like, screw this. I'm, I don't, I don't need to see anymore. Or, you know, they stayed in and there were very few people aside from the leaders, the upper level, upper level leadership that stayed in beyond that. So for me personally, kind of continuing on and then, you know, later on in my career deploying many, many, many more times, um, that was almost a therapeutic thing. But looking back at Mogadishu just in general, you know, it was it was a, a completely unique and different experience. And even though I deployed other places in the world as a part of, you know, the global war on terror, um, I never saw anything as significant as what I saw on October 3rd and 4th. Really? That was just a completely different level of ferocity and violence and death. Yeah. Oh, it's, it's incredible. You know, as an outside person who's interested in that, who's, read about it and watched the movie how accurate has the portrayals of that been um i think i think that the movie you know in general because it was based on the book and i think there was a lot of research done in you know into putting that all together i think it was fairly accurate i think it was i think it was very factual from the perspective of who was where uh what moving pieces and parts were happening when Uh, You know, and that's stuff that most people don't realize. As an example, I think that there were probably to the tune of 100, 115, 120 Rangers on the ground during the battle, of which 77 were given Purple Hearts. And not everybody that got a Purple Heart was wounded to the point of not being able to continue to fight. But it left the majority of the fighting to to a very small amount of people, a very small number. And, you know, that that's something that when it was all said and done, these guys ended up in Germany and a lot of them got military, you know, retired out of the military mm-hmm. and were never seen again. 
And so it took months just for us who were all there because every platoon and every guy did something a little bit different. It took months for us to even piece together like, well, where were you when this happened? Oh, I was running around with so-and-so. Oh, okay, well, what happened when this happened? And, and there was a lot of that, but I'm, I'm not kidding when I say it was probably the better part of 18 months just for us to piece together kind of what had happened and when. Hmm. And, you know, we didn't all have radios, as an example. Nobody knew we were going into a bad part of the city. Nobody in my group had any clue that we were going into a bad part of the city. Uh, it was just a regular mission, just like the other seven missions that we, you know, did prior. Mm-hmm which were all very successful. That's, that's a story that I wish would be told, you know, is, is these other things that we did that accomplished, you know, some really good stuff. Um, but anyway, it, it's, uh, I think the level of training that I've received prior to deploying again was so different and so much better that by the time I went back and deployed again, it was, it was just a completely different, completely different thing mm-hmm. you know i mean as basic as having hearing protection you know that that we all you know everybody's running around in peltors or swordens or something like that nowadays there was none of that you know we didn't even have earplugs <laughs> so you know just the hearing loss alone from that one day i still have but anyway you know, there's. I think that's an important point that directly translates to law enforcement too. Is is we we often debrief a specific call. You know, what could we do better? What did we do correctly? What did we do wrong? Or, or where where did we expose ourselves to unnecessary risk? But taking that and translating that into our into our training as we move forward, right? And I think the most obvious application for us is how we've changed our response to active shooter situations, right? And how we went from the time of Columbine, which was a surround and wait, to just last, well, a week ago with an active shooter in my own area where a sergeant, you know, went in, hearing the shots, went in by himself, well, with a CHP officer, went in and confronted the shooter. Uh, and that, and ultimately, shooter took his life, but that, that tactics changed because people were dying and we can't stand outside anymore. But evaluating how we do our training, what equipment we use, all those sorts of things. Those are important. Those are important, not just for the chief or the sheriff or the, uh, you know, Lieutenant Colonel to be in charge of, but for each and every guy, don't you think? Sure. And you know, that's something at the time where, as an example, if we did a live fire in the Rangers, you know, there was a walkthrough first, there was a leader's walkthrough, right? Planning. We called it a penis. (laughs) which was like planning exercise, not involving soldiers (laughs) anyway. So we would do this walkthrough and uh, you know, so like here are your lanes of fire. Okay. Got it. And then we would do a blank fire walkthrough, you know, with our, with our teams and squads. Mm -hmm. And then we would do a live fire and then we would do the same thing at night. And you know, that's not the way combat is like you're instantly thrown into a situation where, Okay, I'm being engaged. I don't have night vision. Um, these these other guys have night vision. They're effective. I'm not. You know, that's a, a perfect example of. Uh, you know, these guys have lasers. We don't have lasers. So I don't know. There there are a number of a number of things that probably came out of that. 
So one of the interesting touch points, I mentioned this a second ago. I don't know if we talked about this a couple of weeks ago when we talked, but uh, going back to the music and the music career uh, was I actually tried to sign one of your teammates years ago. I mean, this is early 2000s. And he um, was a country artist. His name is Kenny Thomas. He's actually kind of well-known now. Um, yeah. But back in the day, he had this band called Cornbread. Oh yeah, <laughs> I don't know if he's still. I don't. I think he's solo now, just so, strictly solo. I don't think the band's around. Um, and I don't. Did you know Kenny? Yeah. So Kenny and I were in the same uh, platoon. No. For, <laughs> yeah, we were in the same platoon. We were in. We went to ranger school together, <laughs> and then, yeah, we were good friends and uh, traveled down to Florida to hang out with his his family a number of times. And I think. Uh, Christmas of 1992, he spent in Maryland with my family, and uh, my mother took like half of my Christmas gifts because we were basically the same size and build. She took half of my Christmas gifts and gave it to him, and it was all <laughs> clothing and stuff like that. So, anyway, but that's yeah, really we, funny. We know each other very well. That's funny. He was I. So I was 20, probably 23, 24 years old, and I was trying to dabble into A and R, which is for people listening. <laughs> A&R stands for Artist and Repertoire, which are the guys who go out and, quote-unquote, discover the the next big thing, right, the hot new band. And so I was listening to demos and trying to get my foot in the door, and I was, honestly, I was not good at it. I was not. But I loved Kenny's music, and we spoke a couple times on the phone, and I was trying to get him to L.A. for a showcase, and um, my boss would just absolutely not listen to it because of the name of the band. Because uh, he thought Cornbread was just the worst name for a band, and I, I, I try my best to convince him to to consider Kenny, but I always uh, 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 appreciated him, and I ended up we actually ended up getting one of his songs into a movie I was working on, um, which was cool. Uh, they used one of his songs as background music, um, so <laughs> it's just and it's been God, I don't know what is it, fifteen, sixteen years since I've spoken to him, yeah. but uh, a, a, a nice, uh, such a wonderful person. Um, yeah, that he's a really good dude. Hi, my name is Kit Dump, and I am the sales and marketing director for Hardhead Veterans. Hardhead Veterans believes that police should have the best equipment available to them. That's why Hardhead Veterans exists. I come from a military family. As far as I can think back, that was what was going to happen. When I first got into the military, when I first checked into my first team, we were issued what was called the Mitch helmet, a mid-ear type cut helmet. We wore those things for every operation, every mission. Helmets at that time were around $1,500 for a decent quality high cut ballistic helmet that worked well with everything you'd want it to do. With helmets, a lot of people see the resistance to penetration test as the end all be all and our helmets certainly pass that test for level 3a but there's a whole nother level of tests publish that data directly on our website and you can actually compare apples to apples there and see what helmets are performing at and the actual lab data there there are quite a few companies now that have come out and are selling very similar helmets that do not meet the full battery of tests. Departments would love to outfit all their guys with helmets. That's that's really out of the question for most departments. The reaction has been amazing. Go look at our reviews on Facebook or Google. 
I'm Kit Dump, and our mission is to help you guys stay safe. You know, the world is a small place, and, like, you and I got put in touch by a mutual friend. We just showed another example of where we have this other touch point from 15 years ago. Um, that's not a question. It's more of an observation, you know, and how um, how truly connected we all are, I guess. so. I, I agree, and I think that as you go up the pyramid, um, you know, that, that world gets smaller and smaller and smaller. You know, so it's one of those things where there are only a handful of people that end up in this circle, you know, and, and everybody knows everybody. That's, that's, you know, one of the things I tell people about special operations and, uh, and the number of people that will hit me up and ask about, oh, my, uh, this is no shit. Uh, somebody from the Department of Justice hit me up and said, my boss was in Mogadishu as a ranger. And I was like, oh, no shit. What was his name? And he threw it out there. And I said, I'll, I'll guarantee you he wasn't there. So he's a liar. <laughs> and, uh, you know, not, not that I'm in the business of like ratting people out or anything like that. But yeah, absolutely. This guy wasn't there. But, I, you know, you, you're with the group of people that's that small. And, you know, the number of years that you're telling stories about stuff that happened, and, you know, peers, you know, who was in your squad? Oh, these three guys. Okay. It just, it's a very small, you know, like you said, it's a very small world. And it's funny because Kenny never once mentioned, he never used the Ranger thing or, or Mogadishu as a marketing angle, which he totally could have. Uh, but I didn't know about it until after many conversations with him. Um, but it seems to me that if you're in a, if you, how do I say this? You know, I'm, I'm, a fir- I'm a firm believer of the, of the idea that you are the people you surround yourself with, right? And um, seeing as I'm guessing you agree with that based on your progression through the military. But when you surround yourself with excellent people, you get to know excellent people. (laughs) You know, know, those connections, those those friends in common also become excellent. And you just raise the bar on your own quality of life, but on your own uh, work output. Uh, Okay, so. Not to belabor the ranger thing. So you, you spend some time in rangers and then you move on from there. And where do you go from there? So I was in uh, B Company, 3rd Ranger Battalion from 91, April of 91 when I got there uh, till May, I think, May of 95. And I, I actually, so to kind of lay out the transition from one to the other, I was supposed to have gone to what's called RRD, which is the Ranger Reconnaissance Detachment. At least that's what it was called at the time. I was supposed to go to selection for that in October of 93. But we went, you know, from a JRX in Texas in July to ended up in Mogadishu in August. And, you know, obviously the selection wasn't something I was going to be able to do. But because I had raised my hand and said, you know, hey, I'm going to leave and go elsewhere, possibly, if I make it through the selection course. Um, you know, I kind of got put on the on the sideline of promotion and everything else until uh, Mogadishu happened. And then basically in my platoon was the platoon that was driving around looking for crash sites and, you know, engaged and, you know, had the majority of the casualties. And so I felt like afterwards, once I got back and everything kind of settled, it would be
you know, it wouldn't be in good taste for me to leave and go do something else because I felt like I owed it to the platoon to kind of help bring up these new guys and, and young guys that we were getting in. So there was like me and one other guy, um, maybe that weren't injured that were uh, about the same rank. And, uh, anyway, so then I got put on like the fast track for promotion and sent to all the schools and, you know, jump master and seer school and, and stuff like that. So I did that for, um, you know, from, we'll say 93. Oh, and then also in the fall of 94, we were supposed to jump into, and we're literally parachutes rigged on the planes with the planes fired up, um, supposed to go invade Haiti. And a lot of people don't even know or, or remember that, but, um, we got, we got held for 24 hours because Jimmy Carter was still on the ground trying to negotiate. And that ended up in a, a peaceful agreement. And, I can't even remember the circumstances of Haiti in 94, why we were going to invade. But um, anyway, so stuck around for that. And then I think spring of 95, I went to selection for the Ranger Recon Detachment, of which I got selected. And then I spent three years there. Interesting. And so just for people, what does the Ranger Recon Detachment do that's different than the Rangers? Well, it, uh, it started, it was uh, a detachment of 24 guys. Um, three teams of six and a headquarters element. And basically each team was numbered one, two, and three. And we worked for the corresponding Ranger battalion. However, that Ranger battalion needed us. So if they were conducting an airfield seizure, we might, you know, do a military free fall into, you know, a small area and then move through the woods, overwatch the airfield, send back digital photos, you know, things like that. Um, you know, so that the, the battalion had situation, situational awareness prior to jumping in and assaulting the airfield. That would be like a, a bread and butter kind of mission, I guess, for, for the recon detachment. So, again, this theme of transitions and going into something that required a lot more training, uh, a lot, you know, it was a promotion. What uh, Was there ever any sense of, you know, the a common phrase these days is imposter syndrome? I don't know if you've heard that. But um, sorry, go ahead. No, explain that a little. So imposter syndrome. So kind of this sense that you don't belong, uh, that everyone's going to figure out that you're, uh, you know, you're not skilled enough. You're not, you're not maybe necessarily good enough. I'm guessing by the time you've gone through Mogadishu, these things have pretty much washed away and maybe just the military training in general gets it from you. But I think you see it a lot on the musician sides or you see it with musicians a lot. Uh, you also see it with young officers who are, you know, coming into service and trying to, you know, develop the courage to go through either the academy or to apply or to go out on the street. Um, so I'm just curious, as you move through these things, was this like a, like in your, was your mindset, uh, I'm going to be good at this, this is going to happen for me? Or were you, were you nervous at all? No, I think I think with change, right? There, there are two ways of looking at change. One is, oh my God, stress and the unknown, and and kind of fear. Mm-hmm. And the other is, that's how I get better. That's how I get stronger. That's mm-hmm. how, you know, it's a natural progression. So everything that I did in the military, I felt like I was ready to do, and and that the change was going to be something that would. Um, 
you know, better me in some way, shape, or form and challenge me. And so that that's something I think, like, challenging myself, I could never stay in one place that long because I feel like, okay, I've, I've got it. I've mastered it. Now what's next? Right. And that, that's kind of been my whole life. It I, well, yeah, it clearly has. Good at it. You know, it even, even with the music stuff prior to the military, it's like it didn't fail because of me. It failed because of others. Mm-hmm. And I couldn't count on my teammates, other bandmates, et cetera, to, to accomplish what they needed to do. And so it's like, well, and now I'm in a place where I've got the best people around me, you know. These are some of the best Americans, and, you know, I know that they've got my back, and I know that I've got their back. So, I don't know. Everything that I did was just a, the, the transition that should have happened, but it was also a challenge. You know, I think that's such a – that right there could be the lesson of the entire show is, is being willing to accept change, but also looking for it. You know, there, there's, a, there's a saying, I think it's heard around the country, but – there's two things cops hate. It's change in the way things are. And uh, that's sadly more true than it's not. Than it's not. And um, you see people who become stagnant, which then leads to bitterness, which leads to that, you know, kind of improper tactics and improper interactions on the street. Largely, I think, because they're afraid of change uh, and they don't want to change because even... Uh, a, even a, a, a status quo that is undesirable is is safer for some for people than willing to risk the change. You know what I mean? Right. It's the unknown. Yeah. That's the fear. You know, it's comfort. Comfort in my current situation that that allows me to you know do whatever it is. Or there's this big unknown, and and that's fear for most people. And and that's something that I guess I don't know whether. I don't have that or it's something that maybe people that are in my line of work or the line of work I used to be in don't have. Maybe that's a characteristic or personality trait. Mm-hmm. But I think I think that that's something where like constantly trying to do the best you can do at what you're doing at the time. And then when it's time to move onward and upward, be prepared and do it. Yeah. And it's it's one thing to talk about it. That's that's a lot of what I see is people talking about, yeah, I'd love to go do this, or I would, well, do it, you know? That's the lesson for me um, with the podcast or anything that I'm trying to promote with what I'm doing with the band mm-hmm. is to say, if I can do this, anybody can do it, you know? Right. So so uh, at this point, let's uh, you do a couple of years in Ranger Recon, three years you said, I think, and then um, what, what happens for you next? Well, you, you, you so, mastered that, you decided to move on from there. So, so at that point, um, you know, I had heard about Delta and was really, you know, the point of joining the military for me was I wanted to be in Delta and I didn't, I didn't just like most people that are listening, don't necessarily understand that it takes years, years, not, not weeks, not months. It takes years to get to, you know, kind of achieve that ultimate goal, just like, and I use the NFL as an example. Nobody, nobody starts playing football at six or seven years of age and then is in the NFL. It's years of doing everything else, you know, to get you prepared and good enough to be in the NFL. And then when you're in the NFL, what's the average career, you know, two years, three years. Mm -hmm. And 
you know, the, those standout guys, you're, you're talking about a very few of everybody that starts playing football that makes it through all the wickets, that gets to college, you know, or high school, then to college, and then from college to the NFL. You're talking about a really small number of individuals, and it's the same on the military side. So, you know, the accomplishment of getting there and making it through selection was never really something that hit me, and I never really felt any, um, you know, people will ask me this all the time, and they'll say, wow, you must have felt like this great accomplishment um, making it. And it's one thing to make it. It's another thing to be there and thrive and do well and sustain for 12 years. That's a completely different level, you know. So, um, yeah, but that's that's kind of what I did next. So I went through selection and then went through the operator training program. I went to selection in the fall of 1998 and then was assigned in 1999 and then retired uh, from Delta in 2010. So I spent a total of, of 12 years there. Yeah, that's such an interesting point uh, that you just brought up about the idea that getting there wasn't the hard part. It was staying there. And I think that's common in anybody's career. And anytime we want to level up anything we do, it's the attention to detail to stay there. Don't you think? Yeah, I think that's that was actually harder than than going through the selection course. And I would say the same thing, you know, like a, a, a doctor, right, goes through medical school and it's, it's an incredible accomplishment just to pass all of the tests to get to be a certified doctor. Okay, well, now you're a surgeon. Uh, and how long does that last? Just, just because you made it through medical school and now you're a surgeon doesn't mean that you're going to be, you know, the best brain surgeon ever known to man. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that's that's a completely different level. So once you're there, the challenge really starts then. And you're you're with a group of guys that are very competitive and everybody wants to be their best and everybody wants to be the best shooter. But you know what? Not everybody can be. So where do you where do you shake out in that? And how much are you willing to, you know, put in above and beyond to get good? And so what was that decision to retire? Was that an easy one? Did, uh, I mean, you you're actually almost 20 years if I'm doing my math right. But uh, was that an easy one or was that a hard one? Um, both. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, to be to be really clear about it. Um, yeah, it was something that where, again, my level of staying in one place for too long, um, you know, started to eat me up after. So when I first got to Delta, here, this is what it was. I drive through the gate. I talk to the guards, you know, I'm happy and I'm thinking this is like going to work at Disneyland and ride on the rides every day. <laughs> like it's that much fun. I love it. And I'm never leaving this place ever. That was the first, you know, year. And then as you move up, it's like, oh, hey, there's a cycle here. And OK, now we're doing this training again. And then it becomes repetitive and, and that's all for a reason, and it's a very valid reason. But after about four years, I started looking, you know, at, okay, what can I do next? Where's the next thing? And anyway, so I guess after I had been there about eight years, I transitioned over to like an R&D position and started developing gear and equipment for, uh, for everybody. So I was still operational. And uh, still deployed from that position in a different role. But, um, 
Yeah, that was something that I almost had to do for myself because I couldn't, as much fun as I was having, it just, the re- the repetition of it got old, very old. Yeah, I can I can relate to that. I just came off of a, uh, a patrol, and it's an assignment I love. I love patrol. I love being out on a street and, you know, being ready to respond to calls and initiating proactive stuff and being out there on the hunt. And it's, it's absolutely still fun for me. Right. But (laughs) that idea of the repetition, right. And that, the, 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 the constant night shift or, uh, and the, and the training that goes into that, it gets repetitive. You want to go do new things. You want to try new things and expand your own knowledge base. Um, so when you left, this is and this. Well, and that really... was that kind of takes me to the next thing, right? Sure. Which is the decision, the decision to retire. You know, being a good and bad thing. Two two things with that, right? Mm-hmm. One is I knew leaving that it was going to be something that I missed every day. You know, there is no way that you can have the camaraderie and the tight knit and as good a people. There's no way that you can have that in any other place that you could be, right? right? So using the NFL example, same deal. It's like guys work for years to get there. They get there, they're surrounded by incredible players. And then when they leave, like, well, now what do I do? And uh, so I knew making the decision to leave was going to be tough in that I would miss it. I would miss the people. I would miss the importance and the purpose of the mission. And that really is, uh, you know, I, I think a very key and critical part of the whole thing, right? It's purpose. And, you know, knowing that Delta, most people don't know this, but like Delta works for the president. It's not something that is, you know, some colonel goes and tells you to do this or some general says, go do that. It's a directive of the president. So doing things before the American public even knew what was going on you know we'd already done some really good and great things and you know I knew that there wasn't going to be a whole lot else I could do that was going to be as important as that ever Um, so that was that was kind of the downside the upside was I'm 41 and I can start another career I can do something else I can you know anything that I want to go do I can go do so you know, that's, that's kind of the way I approached that decision was I know that there's going to be some things that suck and I don't enjoy, but I've got to do this to keep, you know, figuring out what's next for me. That's a really, uh, I think powerful teaching point, you know, cause it takes a lot of, it takes a lot of guts to leave something like that. And I think that a lot of us in law enforcement have that same sense of purpose and same, um, clear understanding of what we're supposed to be doing with our lives. Right. Um, obviously we're not getting our orders from the president, but if you feel like you're going out every day and making an impact and doing positive things and being part of a group of people doing the same positive things, it's hard to leave that. And you see that, especially with right retirees, but medical retirees too, guys who go out on injury and they struggle with that transition and finding a purpose after the fact. Um, how, I mean, you know, you said you want to start a new career. Was there a mission involved for you in that? Or was it transitioning to the music now? Was it about the ability to focus on music and you feel like you, you've done your part and you can you can put that aside, your part being your part for the, the country, but you can put that in your in your 
toolbox, but then you can start focusing on this new creative endeavor? Yeah, well, I, I think that it's very easy to be the guy that's like, hey, look at me. I used to do that. I used to be in this unit. I used to such and such. And I never felt like that was something that I wanted to be. Right. And I also, this was, this was kind of a key point for me, both about Mogadishu and in being in Delta, was I never wanted that to be the thing that defined me, right? Mm. Like, I'm more than that. I'm a father. I'm a husband. I'm a brother, a son, you know? And I'm a musician. I'm artsy and creative. I, you know, love to surf. I love the ocean. I love the beach. Like, I'm all of these things. That's one part of me. Mm -hmm. I never wanted that to be the thing that 100% defined me. And I think that that's something that even with Mogadishu, like I don't sit around and talk about it like, oh, hey, yeah, back when I was in Mogadishu, um, <laughs> you know, that, that never is a thing really. It'll come up from time to time. And it's, it's, uh, I, I would, it's, it's not something that I ever go a day without thinking about in some way, shape or form, um, you know, because it had that big of an impact on my life. But that doesn't mean I wear it on my sleeve. And I think Right now, one of the things that I'm actually probably most proud of is that anybody that meets me now has no clue that I would have been in Delta or in the Rangers or anything else. They're like, man, you're just cool dude and chill. And like, you know, yeah, it was always that way, you know. But, yeah. but that's something that I don't wear it on my sleeve. Like, I'm not the guy with the. 400 Vietnam pins on my hat or, or whatever. Not that if that's who you are, great, you know, have at it. But I like that. I don't let that define fully who I am. And I think that people that identify fully as like, I know some incredible commandos that are, that are probably really shitty husbands right. and re really shitty parents. And so who's, who's, a, who's the better person? Is it the incredible commando, um, you know, or is it the person that's more well-rounded? And, and that's something that I think is like a part of the culture that needs to, you know, it needs to be more of a teaching point for young guys coming in. It's like, if you just identify as a commando, you're going to be shitty at everything else in your life. Because to be a really incredible commando, like you kind of have to throw everything else away. And, you know, anyway, that, that's something that I think I didn't struggle and haven't struggled the way some others have that, like you mentioned before, either it gets taken away because they're shot and, and wounded in a way that they can no longer do it, or, you know, they break something or hurt themselves to the point that they can't do it any longer. And then all of a sudden it's like, man, what am I now? What mm -hmm. am I going to do now? Who am I? And, and I feel like I never lost that. I always had that piece of me, like the army never took it from me. You know, it was never a robot that folded his socks. Like I'm a slob, you know, mm -hmm. and, and I refuse to allow the army to take that away from me. And, um, anyway, so I, I would, I would tell people that are going into whether it's SWAT or whether it's, uh, you know, the military or anything else, it's like, yeah, you have to play the game. Yes, you have to follow the rules and do what you're told. But you also are still this individual, and you always have to identify with that first. I think that's a that's a great lesson for people and a great point, especially for young guys, to be aware 
of <clears throat> my experience, how easy it is to let this become your identity, you know, and, and who you identify as, you know, as the years go on and as you're for uh, speaking strictly from a law enforcement perspective, but as your non-law enforcement f- friends tend to fall off, you know, as you get older and you get kids and you get busier, but also you start to, it's very easy to confine yourself to the echo chamber of hanging out with other cops uh, who all think and act like you do. Uh, and that's not very interesting, right? <laughs> it's not, it's not an interesting conversation to have when the person across the table has the exact same mindset as you um, to keep, a, to keep that, idea that you are these other things and that to be good at these other things you need to pay attention to them and focus on them and give them their attention and and that's how you become a rounded person which actually I think makes you a more successful officer as well right you bring those things back to work with you uh, and you you increase your toolbox I guess so you're back into music again I guess you never really left but I mean you're you're heavily focusing on your music again you have a, a new band um, tell us about that and how we can begin to connect with you there. Well, that's that's kind of one of the, the next things, right? So to kind of piece that transition together, um, you know, my wife and I go out like every Friday night and we'll have a, a drink or two and then we'll go eat dinner and it's kind of like our date night. And for years, I kind of um, was trying to figure out the best medium and mechanism for me to you know do the next thing like what is the next thing and you know one week you know she and I would talk and I'd be running for office you know and then (laughs) and then the next week it would be you know something else and you should do this and then one day I have a, a whole room in my house which is just you know my music equipment and guitars and amplifiers and stuff and she came in and she said, you know, it's just a shame you're not doing anything. I mean, I play, right? But it's a shame that you're not doing something with this. And it didn't click when she said it, but I was driving to work the next day and the light bulb went off and I was like, that's it. So if I can put some music together and sell it and people uh, buy into it, right, then I can take the proceeds of that and I can give it to special operations charities or charitable organizations that I believe in. And, and that, that's kind of where it started. So I approached the first, the first person that I approached about it is a good buddy of mine. Who's, who's literally one of my favorite people on the face of the earth. And his name's Jason Everman. And, um, he's a guy that was in the Rangers as well, but prior to joining the Rangers, he was in both Nirvana and Soundgarden. And then, you know, had a, a kind of soured experience with the music business and and did kind of the same thing that I did and, and was like, ah, fuck it, I'm going to join the military. And anyway, and then Jason went on from the Rangers to be a special forces guy and then went on to do some other things. Um, but I approached him. He was in town, literally. So this conversation happened with my wife and I. And then the next day, the light bulb went off. And within like four days, he was in New York, where I live now, to uh, to see a concert with me. We went to go see Mastodon, and anyway, he was like used to roommate with Bill Kelleher, who's one of the guitar players, like so and so, and we knew each other, so we were going to go hang out with them afterwards. And um, anyway, before the concert, I said, you know, hey, look, I know you've been out of music for a long time, 
but I can't think of anybody better to kind of start this with than you. Um, you know, but I want to start doing something with music and put something together. And I don't know what it is now or haven't defined it yet, but, you know, we'll take whatever we sell and we'll give the proceeds of that to, you know, some charitable organizations that we that we believe in and think are, are good. And he was like, absolutely, let's let's do it. So I kind of, for the first time ever, put myself out there on social media, which is uh, Silence and Light official on Instagram, which is the only thing that's up right now, aside from other bandmates that have their own Instagram pages. But And, and just kind of started putting the word out there. And, you know, within a couple of weeks, you know, I started having a thousand, you know, a couple thousand followers and then and was trying to say, you know, hey, here's who I am. Here's where I came from. And this is what I'm trying to do. And I think it was something that started connecting with people. So I guess uh, maybe two months into that, I had, you know, one of the first other bandmates hit me up via Instagram, not somebody that I knew, but was a guy that had served in Marsoc. And he said, you know, hey, I don't know exactly what you're doing, but. I'm in, I play bass and I'll do anything you need. You're like, you want me to help with promotion? I'll do that. If you want me to play, I'll do that. Like, what can I do? And, you know, so he and I chatted and that's kind of where it started. And then that led to a drummer and then that led to a singer. And now we're a complete band and written all music and, and everything else. So that's, uh, that's really what it is. And, you know, we're in the process. I've, I've had to learn you know, again, when you talk about like challenging yourself, it's not just being a band like this isn't a band that we're going to go play at uh, Callahan's pub on Friday night. Right. This is like a real thing. And if you aim high, <laughs> right, then you're you're setting your sights high. Then it, then it's destined to be something at least above mediocre, hopefully. Right. Um, but it, it's something that. um I've had to stand up a business, right? So a corporation, because if we sell a certain amount of something, we earn the proceeds through royalties, even though we're contributing those royalties to charity, I would still get personally dinged for it in taxes. So, oh, now I've got to learn about standing up a corporation and which type of corporation, and is it better to do a not-for-profit versus a BIS versus a 5013C versus... So, and then that leads into like, well, we need a website and, you know, it kind of just grows horns. So it's not just about the music, but it's, it's about, it, it gave me something else to do with my brain other than, you know, sit around and think of things. So I've uh, had to kind of do all that and it's become almost a full-time job and the, and the album's not even out yet. Uh, where can people follow you on socials and, uh, and I'll, and the website so that uh, they can you know when the album is ready. So the the website should be live in the next week or two, and that's uh, silenceandlightmusic.com. And I'll I'll double check that and let you know um, so that when you post this, you'll you'll have the right one. But it should be silenceandlightmusic.com. Uh, Instagram is silenceandlightofficial. And then, you know, from there, you'll see everybody else's own individual page. I, r I run the Instagram, so there's a lot of me on there and my former life and, you know, current and music stuff and my cats and all kinds of other <laughs> things. So um, that's that's where it all is right now. And we'll put uh, the links in the show notes, too, for people who want to follow or 
want to look that up but can't you know can't write it down as they're driving or whatnot well they can go to the squadroom.net for this episode and then uh, i'll post those in there too so they can find them there perfect uh brad i appreciate your time and your perspective man what a career and to transition into a new one uh at you know it's isn't it's 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 inspiring to be honest uh and as someone who uh you know our we have had like we've talked about touch points uh throughout our life where we've interacted with some of the same people uh or had similar experiences we're now interacting with some of the same people and some of the other work you're doing now uh you know i wanted to ask at the end um, in doing my research for the show today, I, I found a photo, uh, and it's, it's a photo of you posing with some teammates who are blurred out, but you're there and you're wearing a police patch on your vest. I don't know if you are familiar with this photo. Oh yeah. 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 There are, there are a number of them actually. Okay. So, you know, you weren't an MP, um, but I wanted to ask about, about that patch and what that, cause it, it struck me as. So I don't know, some sense of solidarity or something like that. And maybe it's just me searching for meaning in that. But, you know, you've got a job right now where you you still work in the community of military and law enforcement. And, it, you know, for the guys out there on the on the beat pushing a car and, and, and struggling to do the right thing and be the one. Do you have any last words of advice, comments, suggestions, encouragement for them? Man, nothing like uh, putting pressure on me, right? <laughs> right. Um, so, so this was the whole point of starting the music project was to really draw awareness. I don't think we need to to make people aware of uh, post traumatic stress. I think that's become a fairly common, um, you know, in America's vernacular, right? Of, right. And and post traumatic stress isn't just from battle. It's not just from seeing bad things. Um, you know, when you're a SWAT guy or, or on the beat or anything else on the job, um, it can come from a number of different things. And, and the point of the whole, really, the point of the band and this project was to say, I've, I've lived it. I've lived the worst shit that you can live, and I'm okay. And one of the reasons that I'm okay is because I've figured out that giving back to the community that that we all love is something that gives us purpose right so the two things we were talking about before purpose and then the other is giving back and this is a way that i was able to figure out how to do it so that it made sense for me Mm -hmm. how can i give back anybody can start a foundation and go out and try and fundraise you know but what can you do to give back how can you contribute how can you still you know connect with your mates and and do something for the community. And that's something that, you know, I feel very strongly about, but my message to anybody is I don't care how bad you have it or you think you have it. And some people, their worst, their worst day might be that they've lost a pet. And I, I wouldn't laugh at that because the pain is just as real as losing a teammate for it's all perspective. And, um, anyway, so for anybody struggling, a let somebody know, reach out to somebody and, and you're worth it. You know, there's no reason to live through and to have done, you know, great things and then only to succumb to suicide or something like that later. And alcohol and drugs won't fix it. So it'll just delay it. That's all it does. Anyway, I, I put myself out there not to say, look at me 
It's to say, I've done this stuff. I've done the worst. I've done the best. And if I can do it, anybody can do it, no doubt. So find the thing that makes sense for you and figure out how to get purpose and, and give back to the community. Because if you do those two things, you'll, you'll feel great about yourself. Well, that's about the best part we could end on, I think. <laughs> that's great. That, that patch, did that, is, there, is that just a personal thing? Was that given to you or did that mean something specific for you? Okay, so, so uh, uh, two stories on that real quick. Um, that was an ESU patch. And to be honest, I have no idea where it came from. When, which leads to story number two. I was, on September 11, 2001, I was at home because I was supposed to leave the next day to go run our selection course. And so I was home packing and getting my stuff ready and I was leaving September 12th to drive up to where we run our selection course and, and be a part of the cadre. And anyway, that happened and that changed everything. And we ended up still running the selection course but it started later and, and a bunch of stuff happened. But anyway, when I got back was October of 2001, like late October. And when I walked in, I came home on a Saturday and I had to go to work to drop off all my work gear and everything else. And when I walked into our squadron bar, there was um, a, a box on our squadron bar and it was just a little cardboard box. And I looked in and there were uh, FDNY patches and there were ESU patches. And I looked on the backs, and there were names on some of them. There were um, uh, die motherfucker. You know, it was kind of like, oh, these are intended to be thrown out as death cards. Like the war on terror hadn't started yet, but it was it was getting ready to. It, it actually it had started already, but anyway, not officially. <laughs> I I kept uh, an FDNY patch that had a name on it, and I kept the ESU patch, and I had them both like put Velcro on them, and then wore them on my uniform or on my assault vest and, and always had them with me. So that, that ESU patch was something that got sent down. The patch that had the name on it, the FDNY patch, ended up belonging to um, my current wife's brother who was killed September 11th. So uh, September 11th, 2005, I was running on my treadmill in my house and was watching TV and they were reading the names of the victims of uh, of of September 11th and I see this beautiful young lady and she says, and my brother, and she says the name that's on the patch that I had. And I was like, Holy shit, this is, this is incredible. So I, I contacted uh, a buddy of mine in New York and, and asked if he could take me to the firehouse so that I could drop something off. And basically I took the patch and my flag off my assault vest and the coin. And you'll see these pictures are all on Instagram on uh, silence and light official. Um, and I took a unit coin and I had it framed and I brought it to the engine company where he was assigned September 11th. And the guy that arranged all of it, I told him, you know, because I was in Delta and it's not like I can go, uh, talk with the media and everything else, but, uh, you know, told him, Hey, I want something super low key. Just want to slide in, slide out, you know, give them this thing and return the patch to its rightful home because I had taken it and deployed, you know, I think four or five times with it. So, Anyway, um, he says, uh, yeah, we're going we're gonna to go by and the family's going to be there and all these people are going to be there. And I was like, oh, man, like, holy cow, you just set me up for failure. But <laughs> anyway, I met, I, met, uh, I met my future wife there and 
I, within 30 seconds of meeting her, I, I turned to my friend and said, I'm going to, I'm going to marry that girl. And that's, uh, that's kind of where that started. But anyway, so the ESU thing, is just something that I always wore. I loved it. And I loved representing, uh, the sacrifice mm-hmm. that was, you know, given on September 11th, 2001. I loved representing that overseas. Mm-hmm. ESU uh, for people's emergency services unit. It's NYPD's like, uh, it's their version of, of tier one operators. They're amazing. Uh, as a former resident of New York city, I remember seeing ESU running around and just, it was probably the first inkling I had where I thought, man, that that's a cool job. <laughs> Yeah, uh, yeah. They're they're squared away. What a what an amazing story. I uh yeah. I, should, I should have started with that whole thing. Um that's that's incredible, man. Good for good for you. What a story. Yeah. Again, I've, one of those things it, it just goes Sorry, go ahead. On the Instagram, it's got like you'll see the plaque and everything else and it's a thing. It's it's a pretty powerful thing if you know where the items that are in that case, if you know where they had been and some of the historic things that they'd been a part of, mm-hmm. it, it probably wouldn't be hanging on the wall there anymore. Yeah. And it just goes to that, our conversation earlier about how small the world is, right? I mean, about here you had this patch and you had no idea that years later you'd end up, you know, meeting his family <laughs> and then being so connected, you know, for yeah. life. Amazing. Brad, thanks for your time. Uh, I'm going to post everything in our show links, uh, our show notes, links to the band's uh, information, your Instagram and your and your uh, website. Uh, look forward to being able to experience the music with everybody. Um, appreciate everything you do for law enforcement, the support you're giving us, man. Yeah, no, uh, uh, thank you. Thank you for having me and hosting and getting the word out. And just to let everybody know, we'll be recording with uh, our producer, who's an A-list guy. His name is Josh Goodwin, G-U-D-W-I-N. And I've got some links on the social media to his stuff too. But we'll be recording in L.A. with him uh, January 3rd through the 12th. So album should be complete in February or early March. Excellent. Well, we'll make sure we keep everyone updated on it. And uh, when it's ready, we'll uh, we'll put it out there. Awesome, man. Thank you very much. Thank you. All right, thanks for listening to this episode of The Squad Room. If you like what you heard today, if you got something out of this conversation, please consider leaving a review on iTunes. Uh, very is important. It helps spread the word of the show, and it's, uh, uh, just, it's really helpful. If you heard something you know that a friend or a loved one needs to hear, please tell them about the show. You can go to thesquadroom.net and email this episode directly to someone. Share it on your socials if you want. To keep up to date, you can text The Squad Room to 44222 to get signed up for our mailing list directly from your phone. And you can also follow me on Instagram and Twitter at the squad room or on Facebook. Also, many of you have asked how you can support the show and well, here it is. Tell someone about it. I'm just reiterating what I just said, but the way you can support the show and is to tell someone about it and pass on some of this information. That is how uh, we help change and shift the tide that is uh, coming at us. Tell someone about some of the stuff you've heard on the show, a specific episode, something you've learned that's helped you out and, uh, and and help them learn how to subscribe to the show. So that's it. Again, I want to thank uh, Hardhead Veterans for their support. Uh, if you're uh, looking for a ballistic helmet, check them out. Use the code SQUADROOM for $20 off your order there. All right, until next time, take care of each other and stay safe.